Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to my favorite time of the week. And as part of the, this series, we're very lucky to have Simon Brewer. Simon is a senior advisor at Rothschild and Co. He's also the co-founder of an excellent podcast I recommend you all listen to called Money Maze. And he's also the CEO of Vantage Investment Advisory Limited and chairman of Chip Clifton College Development Club. And I think it's there after uh, Simon. But Simon, great to have you in the series. You were recommended by Johnny Gray, who went down very well. And you two go back a long way to Verbier. So welcome to the series. Wow, it's a delight. Thank you very much for asking me. Yeah, no, great having you here. And we were we were chatting earlier, and it was it was great to chat to you. A hell of a life you've had already. But very interested, by anybody's standard, you're massively successful. But how did life begin out? We're interested in the sort of life's... Um, transitions the highs and the lows but but how did how did life shape you that make you the leader you are today what, what were some of the few of the just key moments in your life as you were growing up well Jonathan, i think you're being far too nice to start with about some of these uh, so-called accomplishments so uh, but i'll take them thank you um look i was born and brought up in bristol um and i have very happy memories of a, of a childhood that was it just, uh, yeah, full of you know, love and fun. And um, my first job, I think, was Bristol Zoo when I was still at school and serving chips to the Welsh folks who came over from uh, Tilville or something like that. See, and it was, um, you know, it was sort of great. And those sort of jobs, and I know my father constantly telling me, well, you know, what if you want to get anywhere in life, you have to work hard. And I, I mean, I think that now having children, seeing my O-level results, which were an absolute car wreck, how I managed to scrape my way through A-levels that were just good enough to get me into the LSE somehow seems, I think it still is a mystery to my mother. Um, but anyway, I uh, I did, and I, I had one of those gap years that, you know, are much maligned or, uh, you know, at least become sort of a you know, source of satire. But I remember I, um, well, I took my RCB exam because I thought I might want to go into the army. And then I went off and was a bellboy in Switzerland, which was just fantastic. I remember turning up at this very smart hotel in San Moritz to be a bellboy. And I arrived at reception. The guy goes, oh, good morning. How can I help you? I think he thought I was a guest. And I said, well, come here to work. And he said, the staff entrance is around the back of the hotel. So it was a rude awakening there. And then from there I went and was a worked in Cape Town as a waiter and traveled and yeah, I pitched up at the LSE and uh, it was fantastic. It, it was fantastic because it was a great institution. It was fantastic because if you were politically motivated, you had the CND camp, you had Thatcher, you know, her arrival was clearly polemic. I remember I brought Michael Hesseltine onto um, stage once with a friend because we were involved in the conservative group. Hopefully lots of people now don't click off your uh, podcast. And uh, I remember that the, the left-wing magazine then printed a photograph saying the prince enters with the ladies in waiting. Um, and so uh, so I had a fantastic time. I thought, this is it. I'm going to be a politician. Um, and then, of course, uh, reality struck, which is what are you going to do? Um, and I, mean, I will tell a short story because um, it was interview time, 1985. You weren't armed with any of the equipment people are today. And so I had a German flatmate who was incredibly, I thought, um, knowledgeable. And so I, we were both due to interview Goldman Sachs on campus. And Goldman you know, wasn't, wasn't really known, but it, it clearly was a job that might pay very well. So I said to him, what are you going to do if they ask you, um, you know, what are you going to say when they ask you what you want to do? And he said, ah, I've thought about this a lot. I'm going to tell them I want to do portfolio management for high net worth individuals. So I said, well, what does that mean? So he explains it to me. So I go into this interview. Two of the most beautifully dressed human beings I've ever seen in my life have flown over from New York. They're interviewing a whole list of people. So Simon, what would you like to do at Goldman's? So I said, well, I've thought about this quite a bit, and um, I'd like to do portfolio management for high net worth individuals. And there was a pause, and they said, we don't do that. And then there was another pause, and I said, I'm very flexible. And then there was another pause, and the interview ended. So I did not 
work at Goldman Sachs. Um, the, the next piece of pay, paid job, which was half the amount of Goldman, was, was at Citibank, which was actually the right thing because it was a much gentle, gentler incubation. And I joined Citibank in 1985 and I started training out to, um, to be a portfolio manager. And you, know, you talk about leadership. I had, there was a gentleman called Farhan Sharaf who had, uh, you know, who had, uh, who sort of took me under his wing, give me as the Americans, they gave me air cover, but um, he allowed me to make a ton of mistakes. And, you know, in that I was able to be both shielded and advanced. Um, and it was great. And so four years later, I, I decided, same German guy who set me up at Goldman Sachs, actually then <laughs> sitting on a plane said, well, you know what, you should join Morgan Stanley. It's a much greater opportunity. And one thing led to another. And I had my interviews at sort of, you know, through Morgan Stanley. And I remember going to my final interview. I have never had sweaty palms, but I had sweaty palms, meaning this very high powered executive from Morgan Stanley. And hey, I got the job and uh, I went from a, you know, a, a good job at Citibank to what could be a great job at Morgan Stanley, but it was to be a commissioned salesman. And, you know, that's so well known in the U.S. as a route, but it is alien, of course, or somewhat alien in the U.K. culture. So you're given desk, phones, you had the gold-plated calling card, because Morgan Stanley was you know, very well known in the U.S., less well known. I actually remember I had to build a client base. So I remember you would scour directories, you would scour lists, you would think who you could talk to. It was essentially for wealthy individuals. And I found these guys, a pair of brothers, who had sold their meat pie business to Grand Metropolitan, and I called, I, I, just, I called them up, you know, you did, you're not allowed to do that these days, but you called them up and I said, hello, I'm calling from uh, you know, Morgan Stanley and I wonder if I can speak to Mr. Davis. And she said, oh, Morgan Stanley, are you over in Newport then? So I said, well, we're in many places around, but not actually Newport yet, but, um, you know, <laughs> and I didn't win the business. But anyway, so I had um, very, very happy, uh, it was 17 years, I think, at Morgan Stanley from 1989 and, uh it managed to dodge a lot of bullets. I think it was Churchill who said there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at without being hit. Um, well, I think I, uh, I, the, you're the soldier. I'm not. But I dodged uh, you know, a few things that might otherwise have ruined my career and probably they would have done inappropriate jokes and you know, that sort of thing. Um, and um, anyway, so uh, I ended up being the uh, chief investment officer. It was a wonderful time, wonderful firm. Again, gave you know me and lots of other people fantastic opportunities, and then you sort of I suppose uh, maybe I should be quiet now, Jonathan. But you know because I'm going to sort of overrun myself. But you know after that I changed direction and, and started to do some other things. But I, I'll, I'll stop. No, it's great, it's great, and it's lovely to hear the humanity and the humility and the humour, which are three things we look for in our guests. You, you brought them on already. I, I was thinking of your. Uh, your story there about the interview. And I remember when I went uh, interview with, uh, I was very excited to interview with McKinsey, even though I was quite late on leaving the army. I had McKinsey and PwC and um, I got through six uh, interviews with McKinsey. I was really chuffed myself, I was doing really well. And then um, they hit me with the, the live maths question. And of course, with someone who's got dyslexic and dyscalculia, even though I did pure and applied maths, I was stumped, literally stumped. And I, I, I blew out at that stage from McKinsey. But I just the day before, can you, can you hear me right? Well, well, I can, but I'm just because I think my memory is so bad that I'll sort of forget to tell you this. But, you know, only that in terms of that interview, I'm going to just share one moment which taught me a lot. But I was there. We were interviewing graduates, MBAs actually, from around the world. And one, I was due to meet a guy who'd been studying or was studying at Columbia. And it, I came into the room, and for some reason, I was carrying a cup of coffee. I don't know why I was to an interview, but I was. And there was a, he was an American Greek guy, and he's very enthusiastic. And he said, Hello, Simon, how are you? Shakes my hand so vigorously that the <laughs> coffee goes right down my white shirt. And it was a moment that would have been a horror. And he paused. And he looked at me and he said, you know what they say, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. <laughs> <laughs> and we hired him because his ability to think on the feet and use humor was to us actually a great thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, those are the moments that stay with you. Well, I was thinking of the PwC interview, a bit like this one, was the day before. And the partner, I got so far to the final interview. And I think it went well. And she said, what happens if McKinsey for your interview tomorrow, offer you twice as much as we would offer you. And without thinking, I said, well, I'd feel undervalued by you. And she said, like it, you're in. And, and it was just like that sort of thinking on your feet, like your friend with the... Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> 
So uh, thanks. And Don McIntyre said, I can tell already this will be a huge entertaining as well as informative. So thanks, Simon. <laughs> Great to you on board already. So, Ben, over to you. I've talked too much. Uh, yeah, so so it's really good to sort of actually get to know you a bit, Simon. And I, I love that uh, that journey from from Bristol and, and all the way through through those sort of interesting career moves. But but what what, what are you doing now? What's, what's, what's the stuff that's... Um, that, that you are uh, currently doing? So to use that probably horrible word, I am plural. Um, and <laughs> you know, that wasn't entirely the, the journey that I thought. I left Morgan Stanley, I bought into a small asset management business. Um, we made it quite a large asset management business relative to the number of people. A couple of hundred million took it to a billion and a half. And, and, and you know, managing money, somebody once said successful investing is a minority sport. And you can look heroic for quite a long time. And as even the great Warren Buffett's had, you know, very uh, sort of, you know, disappointing performance at, at times, not in aggregate, clearly in aggregate, he's been absolutely fantastic. Um, and, you know, we were, we had sort of tailwinds and then we came through the great financial crisis really well and then just got very defensive and, you know, mm. hedging, hedging up, you know, we put protection on to, because we just worried that this money printing and the reverberations, or I should say repercussions of the great financial crisis mm. would run and run. And the, if you like, the debts had to be paid. But of course, that's not what has transpired. What's transpired is that even more debt creation has happened and even more or further distance from orthodox financial policies has evolved mm -hmm. to what we're seeing now. And I want to get sort of into that. But, you know, we were the wrong guys for that. So we sort of essentially stood still when others kept going. And so the business, which we've really grown, uh, you know, to something that we're very pleased with, sort of started to reverse with the Duke of York's. And, and anyway, cut a long story short, that's, you know, for anybody who's proud and has seen a, an empire grow to see it go into reverse is, you know, it's a unhappy experience. And it was, you know, clearly you're sort of, you know, you're soldiering on and you're, you know, you're doing what Churchill said, KBO, keep buggering on, you're going into the office, you're trying to be you know, jolly. Anyway, cut a long story short, it sort of became obvious that I shouldn't be full-time in that role and so became increasingly looking for other things. A number of my colleagues have gone to Rothschild Co. in the UK um, and they were people I was very fond of and liked and admired and anyway, so I have a, this role as senior advisor where I try and help them where I can in various areas. I um, advise, I sit on um, a couple of advisory uh, committees talking about asset allocation as a paid you know, consultant. Um, I, uh, I do this, I mean, I say it's charity, but it is, I chair the Clifton College Development Trust. I'm very you know, fond of and loyal to and keen to help you know, the school that helped me so much. And again, uh, you know, one or two teachers at a certain point in time absolutely were pivotal in allowing me to make that leap from, should we say, you know, even sub-mediocrity to something you know, a little better forever i will be thankful for those you know those those two teachers um and um uh, so uh in addition to that was well, so anyway so i'm chairman of that development trust the governor of clinton college so i'm quite involved in a number of things that we do around there um and then i have this venture which you alluded to at the beginning and i'm not going to use this as a commercial but they, it's called the money maze podcast and a friend came to me, who's a city veteran as well, Will Campion, and said, uh, there's this great show. It's called Capital Allocators in the US. They've got 2 million listeners. We should do this in Europe. It's like, well, what do you mean we should do this in Europe? And he said, you, Simon, I think you should do the interview. I said, well, what a ridiculous idea. Anyway, here we are, six months <laughs> in, and I am doing the interview. Um, and, you know, it's fantastically exciting. We're in 80-something countries and nearly 20,000 listeners, and having people that we never imagined we would come and talk about, as you're doing, journey, but perspectives on investing, ca allocating capital, running businesses. Mm. Um, and you know, it's the new world, isn't it? You know, we mm. can you know, we can make great progress. Now, Ben clearly here is the digital technological expert, and there is a recognition, Jonathan, I'm not going to put you in this camp, that there is a limit to old dogs and new tricks. So I'm very lucky, and Will and I are very lucky that we've got a couple of fantastically young, brilliant people who are helping us hopefully now take this on. But yeah, reinvention. I mean, incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's such yeah. a different different thing to, than what you were doing before, and, and uh, yeah, it must be really exciting and invigorating to be doing something new. Is there is there any piece of advice that you'd like to have given your young self starting out? 
Well, we are limited by time, aren't we? So I think, think, um, you know, there are times when I would say to my children, just be nice to to everybody. Um, uh, I I read a really interesting book, which I might come back to later on, but I'm Mm. going to paraphrase it. But on it, somebody said, well, my father told me that there's a sign on everybody's forehead, which is make me feel like a hero. (laughs) And just sometimes... I would look back and wish I'd be nicer to mm. some people. Um, I wish that every time I had sat on a plane or a train next to somebody, I had absolutely said hello and introduced myself and asked them how they were mm. rather than doing yeah. it sometimes. Shyness, there are no prizes of being shy. I do, again, I'm full of these um, you know, useless sort of idioms, but I say to my children, do you want to be a radiator or do you want to be a drain? Mm. Yeah. Okay? Try and be sunny where possible. Um, so I think to hear their story, not to judge too quickly, which is all part of the same thing. Mm. And now I look back and, okay, data proliferates everywhere, but that's one thing having data and nothing managing it. And I wish I'd been better organized in my early life about keeping data. So when somebody goes, oh, yeah, did you know Santo works at Santander? I go, yeah, I did. And then you look and you go, oh, <laughs> I, I got his card and then I threw it away or I didn't, you know, so no excuse. You know, absolutely yeah. no excuse for not being yeah. really you know, efficient. So look, there's I could go on and on, but those would be some of the ones that come to me quickly. And it's um, traditionally, I mean, from the outside, the, the uh the the business that you work in it's um sometimes a bit cutthroat probably not that easy to be nice all the time um so it's yeah it's probably probably something to look back on and and uh i can, I can understand that one and i like your sort of rule of of starting to com- have conversations in those situations i started doing that at work where the 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 journey in the lift and there'd be people that you've worked with for years and you've seen them in the lift maybe like 20 times and you haven't haven't said hello. So I just started the rule that every time I was in the lift, I'd say hello to everybody. And um, and yeah, it just increased my network within within my own business, like like massively, simple yeah. thing. But And it's remarkable how you could be in that lift and we've all done it, I mean, yeah. for a year. Hmm. And then you think it's too late. It's like a thank yeah. you. But <laughs> yeah. it's not, is it? And you go, no. I have been such an idiot. I have seen you and I've never said yeah. hello and introduced myself. And you know what? It's a ray of sunshine. And typically that person, unless they go, you did introduce yourself and you forgot. Um, but in, <laughs> <laughs> unless, yeah, assuming that's, that's that hasn't one, happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I am, I am the son. Do you not remember me, sir? Jonathan, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, we've, got, we've got two questions. Charisma, humour, engagement seem to be key parts of your personality and therefore leadership. How much of that is natural or plain you? as Viscount Slim would say, and how much have you worked to develop for these qualities? Viscount Slim, there's a quotation I might have to put in my book, so thank you. Um, (laughs) Look, I mean, I don't underestimate the fact that some people are inclined to be more extrovert than others. You know, there is, you know, that's just, that's, that's it. I do think an exercise that is quite useful with children, having had three children, is that getting them all and as a family stand up and do that just one minute exercise of give you a subject how long can you stand up for and say something because one is everybody is unless they're telling fibs uncomfortable initially being in the public persona making a speech in front of the class singing a song whatever it might be so i'm fortunate that i you know i am you know an extrovert tons of self-doubt um, you know, but uh, to a certain extent, go out, do your best, smile, be enthusiastic. So I would say that the enthusiasm has come, you know, from parents who I think encouraged me to be enthusiastic. Um, and, uh, you know, there are obviously times when you have to work it, a, you know, work it a bit when you feel, you know, not feel very good, etc. So, so yeah, it's a, a little bit, but I do think there's another, you know, element there, which is age and confidence. And, you know, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. if, you know, if things, you know, go your way, it's easier. And when you're on a dark day and things aren't so good, you know, clearly it follows through. But I think that extent to the extent that one is able to say, oh, gosh, aren't we lucky, all of us to have, to be here on this planet and to be doing things and having opportunities and so yeah it's back to my generally wanting to be optimistic yeah. i interviewed i interviewed a very interesting um 
Russian-Australian lady on the podcast, Irina Molotsova, and she sort of used that expression, which I like. She said, yeah, I'm a, she said, I'm an optimist. She said, you know, when I see lemons, I think about making lemonade. So, um, you know, try to be optimistic. Yeah. That's good one. And we've got right. the other question uh, before I, I go on to talk about... Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, Who's this from? This is from James Robinson. I was, ju I was just going to say that I, I always think with, um, with sort of public speaking and putting yourself out there, it's it's always like the what's the worst that can happen? I mean, even even if um, something goes wrong, people people forget about it pretty pretty quickly. Um, so this is a question from James um, Robinson, and um, have you witnessed the shift to niceness in these turbulent times, or the opposite? Well, that's a good good question. Now, I think that. I would have said up to the last couple of days that I have witnessed that because there's a sense of shared collective experience which tends to um, it tends to unite. I was told by somebody in an organisation yesterday that they're beginning to see sort of some irritability creep into conversations because we're headed back somewhere we didn't want to go there's a long winter ahead you know the whole debate over restrictions etc um and so i suggested to this particular organization why don't you just you know you could put sex in our room or in business context maybe more and rather than doing this on zoom get in there physically just talk about talk about the issue so I think that understandably there's some irritation and it probably is going to I mean, it will occur in families, but you know, in, in the corporate structure of office, some people have just started going back to the office and finding a new equilibrium. So I think that there is perhaps, you know, we're reaching an intersection. Yeah, and, and building on that question, uh, uh, James, um, I think uh, one of the other CEOs that we were interviewing said he's sort of seen three phases. The first one was about the first three months uh, from March onwards, where there was that sort of uh, collective helping, assistance each other. You know, you saw people applauding the NHS and delivery drivers and everybody mucking in this sort of Dunkirk spirit. Then we sort of got to the, the summertime when people would try to take some kind of break. We just go anywhere on holiday. We had a staycation and we were here, but people had somewhat of a break. And now they're back into the sort of September onwards winter phase and they know that wave two is probably going to be harder hit than wave one. At least we know what's coming. Um, and, and they're a bit fatigued, a bit like sort of on operational tour, six month tour, back to back with another six month tour and another six month tour. And this is where leaders are saying you have to have this recover and discover phase, people renewing. I don't know what your thoughts are, Simon, on, on those views. Well, I think the analogy is a uh, military analogy. You're doing these tours and coming back is good, but there's no, you know, there isn't any respite. Um, you can find palliatives um, and ways to, you know, to, 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 to break it up. Um, and I do think that in that, I'm going to speak to the corporate, you know, world. I think that whilst understanding there may be a new order or an order that was with us for now, doesn't prevent you doing some other things to, uh, you know, help boost morale and yeah. and the, you know, there is a limit uh, you know to zooms or equivalence ability to you know to, to to do that so yeah i think we're and it's tough for you know stuff for the old stuff for the young stuff for you know stuff for all of us yeah. but i think that um, i think there's a you know there's a sense that um yeah we're gonna have to you know get our head down and and, and work around this um, but there's definitely corona fatigue yeah, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. And just thinking about your life, back to your life journey, the highs and lows that you had. If you were to pick out proudest moments uh, in your personal life and your work, uh, and some of the darkest moments, and what you learned from those, because uh, we we all have had highs and lows. But what would be your and the learning from them? So I think darkest moments, I think I just touched on the one where, you know, having built up an asset management business and to see the assets start sort of dwindling and everything going in reverse and we're good offices, you know, you take it personally, whatever you say, whatever the reason you take it personally. So I think that, it's, you know, if you have a loving family around you and you're lucky enough to have that, that is a great way of defraying some of the tension. Now for me, an absolutely essential outlet is exercise. I'm 
probably you know, slightly obsessive about taking exercise, but I do find that it's just you know, great therapy. Now, for others, it might be reading poetry or it might be dancing, but, you know, so I think that. So, so I guess that um, uh, that was a dark moment. I had a dark moment when I was at Morgan Stanley where we got involved with a client who wanted to look at a slightly more complicated structure, and I was slightly uneasy with it. And for whatever reason, I ended up... Re- this was pre-phones being recorded typically, but I, we had a call about this product and I recorded it separately on a separate recorder. Nine months later, Italy blew up within the ERM and there was a whole sort of you know, series of sort of problems in bond markets and currency markets. And I remember the guy then called, came into the meeting and he asked my boss to be there and in front of my boss said, well, Simon told me I couldn't lose money, which absolutely wasn't the case. Now I had the tape as it happened, Proved not to be admissible when it went to court, with to go to court. Um, but you are humiliated in front of your boss, at least temporarily. You feel absolutely like, you know, you even start to question yourself. So you know, I remember coming home really, you know, hanging my head sort of low and feeling sort of pretty desperate about things. And then, but again, you just try and look through that and go, this thing will pass. Um, and then, so those, yeah, so those would be two that I remember particularly. Stay with us, Simon. This this too shall pass. The old Roman emperor's whispered words from his slave behind him, you know, or King Solomon, I think, when things were good, this too shall pass, and when things were bad, this too shall pass. Do you have a sort of stoic philosophy? I'm I'm hearing a little bit of, of sort of wisdom of the ages that you're using. Is this is this the case? Well, I think it comes down to whether you're, you you have a propensity to be more or less optimistic. So I think that if you are if you are more naturally optimistic, you will say you know the sun will rise, um, and therefore you're looking through the valley and clouds respond and you know etc. So so I think that that just might be easier. And of course, it depends. These are very you know they are first world problems. You know they are not sort of you know losing your home in a tsunami and wondering how you're going to be fed I and mean, this sort of stuff. That, you know so so I'm very conscious that I'm talking about something that was you know that was. Uh, yeah, and, and also I'm going to just give a plug for somebody on another podcast called Andy Coulson. Many will remember him, um, and uh, he was News of the World and uh, etc. But he has a podcast called Crisis What Crisis, and he interviews people who have had some really horrible episodes in their life and how they have dealt with it. And I think that's you know really quite quite inspiring. Anyway, um, I guess that you you, you you get on with it. And then you know, then the chapter finishes, and something else begins. So that's how I that's how I managed it. Yeah, right. Um, pr- proudest moments, if you want them. I, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I um, uh, look. I suppose, sort of, when you're at an organisation and you play that actively or passively you play that corporate game and you are involved in that corporate sort of ascendancy and then you 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 are you reach a level that you want as managing director in my case I did get to be the chief investment officer it was, it was you're gonna be chuffed they got luxuriate in it and the danger is that you do that and then you put your take your foot off the pedal. But yeah it was you know for me that was you know that was well, I felt sort of very honored. Um but I uh, you know at a completely different level I um I'm very lucky to have skied a lot. And then about 15 years ago, I took up the skinning. So you go up mountains on skins and, you know, it's quite a physical thing if you want to be. And I started doing a few, you know, endurance uh, challenges. And then I did one particular one, the Patrouille des Glaciers, which is a transalpine one from Zermatt to Bebe overnight. Um, uh, uh, it took us 16 hours. You don't, essentially, you don't stop other than to take your skins off and then to keep going. And, you know, I got the fueling wrong and it was pretty grim in the middle of it. And I do remember we've been going six hours out of Zermatt. We left at 10 o'clock at night and the world champions, because of the pro-am, overtook us. I think they'd be going for two and a bit hours. And it was like, that's extremely humiliating. Um, but, you know, you uh, we, we limped in in the sort of a, a sunny morning to Verbier with crowds and you've suddenly done something. It's completely out of your comfort zone. You know, London office gym and then there you are doing something that you weren't really, sh- shouldn't have done. Yeah, so I think that was, uh, that was yeah. I, can, I can tell my grandchildren about that. Yeah. Lovely. Um, so 
one of the things we 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 sort of find with successful people is they've often had habits which they have which um which which they stick with themselves consistently over time and it's and some of those habits have, have um, fed into their their success so we split those into three sort of areas to to talk about um healthy wealthy and wise so have you got any particular habits which um you have to to stay healthy um both me mentally and physically um so the healthy thing probably has two components one is diet the other is exercise um the exercise to me as i as, as, as i mentioned i just find it my outlet i love to exercise and i change my exercises around depending on season mood bike run fantastic machine in my gym called a versa climber which is just a you know can be a brutal sort of kind of endurance or cardiovascular anyway, so, I, so, I, so I love it. It's some fading, aging sadness that is growing within me that I need to prove something to myself. Um, anyway, so I exercise is you know, key. And healthy, yeah, you know, I think when I, my doctor told me a few years ago, you know, my blood pressure was up and there was some cholesterol, and I thought I ate pretty well and sort of lucky enough not to, I suppose, not to carry much weight. I really started sort of reading some of these books, you know, live longer and eat healthier from the United States from Dr. So, so, you know, but you know, a lot of it makes sense, you know, from Mediterranean diets to fish oil to, you know, cutting out sort of quite a lot of dairy and other stuff and it's sort of common sense. And, um, and it was interesting. I'm sure that lots of people will have listened already and watched. I watched that David Attenborough on Netflix released, um, planet earth but it isn't but you all know what i mean the earth i mean mm. and you know he makes some really interesting points about diet at the end more generally but i think healthy has two components exercise and being sensible but not obsessive about what you eat mm. and uh, just on the um on the wealthy side obviously uh, you, you seem to be a good person to, to get some advice of, on about that <laughs> and there's uh, there's plenty of people who who are probably struggling at the moment um, during these sort of tough times. Is there any good pieces of, of, of advice around around money and uh, and wealth that you that, that you live your life by, or or, or would be useful at, at this time? I mean, advice is always really tricky because so many different people are at different stages. So so it's going to be very. General, sort of axiomatically, I think that the principle of making trying to make singles, a cricket analogy, singles or twos rather than hitting boundaries is relatively sensible because accumulating wealth is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult, and when people have made it, it's actually incredibly easy for them to then sort of you know start being sort of you know uh, not cavalier, not very sensible about it. Um, but I think that um, you know trying to be you know, uh, be measured in your risk, but be prepared to take risk. Um, not to, and it's a, that's definitely a mistake that I have made, um, this sort of cognitive dissonance where you believe your own sort of uh, conversation or you only read the stuff that reinforces your own views. And I've been incredibly guilty of that. So to have to, to listen to others, not that you not 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 that you should rely overly because common sense and judgment plays a part, but you know, being prepared to weigh up why you could be wrong. Um, and I think it was you know, again, I'm conscious I'm going to use a second military analogy, but I think General Patton who said, you know, if you're all thinking the same way, then nobody's thinking. Um, and I, you know, there is that sense that, you know, the obvious when, when the economist, I, I gave a talk the other day and in 19, uh, 1987, Fortune had, you know, had, uh, you know, a uh, 1982 Fortune had a magazine cover the death of equities, which of course was the start of the most extraordinary 20 year bull market. And in 19, I'm going to say, when is that? 2007, my wrong General Electric, the best company in the world. And that was where the stock was at its high point before it collapsed 80%. So, you know, we've got to be a little bit careful about, um, I am a contrarian investor. I, I, I think that there are, I think we have an inflation, you know, that will emerge because that's how governments deal with these policies. I could bore lots of people with why I like certain investments. I'm not, this isn't the, the forum to do that. But you know, <laughs> take advice, you know, diversification makes sense, but, you know, do, and do, and do some work yourself, try and, you know, figure out. But, but of all the pieces of advice, I suppose, one of the one of the great um, 
uh, and I'm going to think it was Warren Buffett, but it actually wasn't. It was somebody at Fidelity and he's gone from mine. But he said that his most valuable day as an investor was on Saturday. So on Saturday he went out and he went to shops and he saw what people were buying and he observed you know, these trends and he could see if a store was doing well, if a product was selling. Now, difficult in this world, but it's amazing how many times you, you know, I remember when the iPod, Apple iPod came out. I mean, Apple had been nearly bust. People forget, they think that, you know, the, the, the iPod transformed Apple's fortunes. Mm-hmm. And I got one. It's like, and then, well, why didn't I buy the stock? You know, now we know <laughs> Apple's journey has been extraordinary, but how often do we actually see something, test it, or our children might use it, see it, like it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just one can pause because investing is about buying good quality companies at a sensible price and staying with them. Hmm. Nice. And I, I was going to ask you for um, maybe a piece of wisdom that you try and live your life by. Um, I don't know if you've got another piece of wisdom, but because the last one was, um, <laughs> was pretty good. Look, um, enthusiasm, persistence, humor, hard work. Lovely. Very good. And then let's go on to, uh, obviously, the theme is inspiring leadership. We could talk about inspiring leaders and team, but I'd, I'd rather you perhaps talk about maybe on your own podcast, the Money Maze podcast, uh, which you don't have to plug because I'll plug it. I think it's good. <laughs> And uh, would there be a couple of people that you found inspiring on there uh, that, that you think are, you know, you, you want to call them out as, as being good, inspiring leaders who've, who've led good teams and have the right kind of character, values, integrity that you admire? Um, yes. I mean, we have been lucky enough already in our short existence to have some uh, fantastic people on. So I'm going to suggest two people who I've been particularly struck by. One uh, was a German lady called Dr. Christina Maguire. She came on the podcast and she has gone from a doctor who practiced in Papua New Guinea to give up her career to go to Goldman Sachs, to go to, to a Harvard Business School. Goldman Sachs runs a, uh, an asset management firm and went to, went to Harvard Business School as a single mother with a six-year-old child, six-month-old child, I think. Very, very inspiring. Dr. Christina Maguire. Secondly, um, Helen Watson, she is the chief executive of Rothschild Wealth Management in the UK. I've known her for 30 years. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I am you know, an advisor there. But just a really great example of how to motivate people, build a successful business, get on with things without a lot of fuss and, um, you know, and, and enjoy the journey. So she's another really, you know, really inspiring person. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And let, let's go on to uh, Ben with sort of topics about COVID and things like that. Maybe we'll just sort of ask a few questions about COVID. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so for you, Simon, what's, what's the sort of impact been um, during the, the, the COVID crisis, both personally and professionally? Well, I think personally, the corona upside was um, having three children and we were all together in Devon for the lockdown and it wasn't the outcome I think any of my children wanted, but I think for my wife (laughs) and myself, um, it was the ability to have just a lot of conversations that we might not otherwise have had and Mm. to be together for a long time. Um, And not without, of course, it's sort of, um, you know, mercurialism there were some highs and lows you know along that but that was that was the you know the personal perspective from a business perspective we know that this sort of whole podcasting sort of journey for anybody who does podcasts has been come at the right time um i think from an investing standpoint it's been highly complicated because if you had been told that the world was going to essentially be infected with a plague that would shut that and governments would do what they've never done shut down the demand and the supply side of the economy. Mm. We can track plagues, it's never happened before. And then to have said that what that has done to multiple industries would not have led, which has led to recession, probably depression, and yet stock markets in places like the US making all time highs, you would have said, well, I simply don't understand that. The disconnect Mm. between the real world and the financial world is, and that's flawed many of us. You could argue why Microsoft, Google, et cetera, five that now are a quarter of the standard plus 500 in terms of their, their market representation. You can understand why they have benefited. But, you know, there's some stuff that, um, that is difficult to understand. 
there is mm. a vast amount of money creation. So I think it's been pretty tricky. I mean, very tricky to manage money through this, particularly if you're a client as an investor, you want to call a value investor. You'd like to buy companies that appear to be tr- cheap intrinsically or relative to their sort of in the future earnings. So, you know, being an investor in this has been really hard. Mm. Yeah, very hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've got one comment on, on the feed about that. And uh, uh, someone who listens to the show quite regularly, um, Venkat's just um, looking for some advice for someone just starting out in investment um, and savings. Where where should one start? Well, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great question, but guys, where should one start? I mean, start by saving, um, and I don't think you need to be in a hurry to to get invested. I think the, you know, the, you know, as you build a portfolio, you know, and it depends on where you are in your life. If you're 25, your time horizon hopefully is exceptionally long. If you're 70, you know, it's different. In the very old days, they used to say the fixed income or the bond weight in a portfolio should be equal to your age. So 56, you might have 56% in bonds. Bonds yield nothing. They are, you know, essentially, I think, worthless. Um, there are pieces of debt issued by governments that are you know, increasingly sitting on precarious finances. But I think that as you build the companies around the world that you may like or the funds, you yeah, do your research, as I said earlier on. Um, and I think gradually committing some money to some of those companies, you may find you're doing your online shopping through one of the online grocers, and that Sainsbury's, Tesco, for example, too, have been through 20-year bear markets, and their stock prices are down now 60% still from the highs of a decade ago. Now, you may decide that you like the business, you may not, you may equally decide there are others, but I think beginning to following companies that you like, and you can go online, you can read their reports, you can see how they're describing their business, there's a lot of sort of you know, public information, and starting think little by little um, gain experience you'll make mistakes what you learn from that um, you just want to avoid the classic investment trap which is you know sell low buy high <laughs> yeah which um which has been easy to do in this um this crazy market this this year with everything fluctuating so 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 much i think yeah and, and really sort of picking up that point on on covid and what's going on um the one thing about the future is it's very uncertain uh, and no one can predict it. But, you know, in what you're reading about markets and what's going on, you, you were touching on this before, and it's fascinating. What do you think will be happening to our economy? And, you know, we've got people like, you know, I'm self-employed, so is my wife. We've both got our own limited company. We have no help from the government. We can get ourselves a bounce-back loan to increase it by £50,000, but there's not much help for the smaller business. What, what do you think is going to be happening to different kinds of businesses in, you know, twenty twenty one and going on? What's how would you predict it, and how are leaders going to handle the way that some of their businesses are not breathing anymore or are bleeding to death? What's, what's your view? Well, I said two questions there, aren't there? In terms of the <laughs> the easier one is how does it look? The answer is tough. It, depending on your business, I was looking at some data. I mean. Global tourism and travel is 10% of the global economy, um, and for some countries, higher. If you're sitting there in those businesses, it's pretty bleak, and you are obviously going to hope that you have enough cash to to ride out the storm, which will pass because, you know, with or without, you know, a vaccine, and, you know, somebody rightly said it's not the vaccines that matter, but the vaccinations. Um, so there will be people who are resistant to taking them. You won't want to simply want to take the vaccines, but um, we will pass through this, and there will be, you know, a a resumption of life as normal, but not quite as we knew it, because there are going to be all these nuances about sort of you know, office practices, etc. But will people travel? Yes. Um, will they travel as often? You know, who knows? Um, but I guess that I am, you know, I. I the economic cycle is exactly that and the authorities are trying to manage the downside as best they can but of course every country is different so again your question john there's a uk centric question i think uk and europe are mature economies they have accumulated large stocks of debt that makes it difficult for them to grow um, the simple answer to hiking taxation i think would be a mistake you know people need to be incentivized to create businesses and to you know get tax treatment that encourages them to take risk and people need to be 
in really to, to think about you know how can they start businesses and our you know education system should should evolve to encourage you know, more of the innovation technology maybe that, that it has so i think it's going to be tough period i think that if you're sitting there in other parts of the world you may think that in asia i'm thinking about you know where world's population sits there's growth that will happen because you've got younger populations aspirational populations in many countries mm. vietnam to to india and why should you be long-term pessimistic i don't think you should uh, but i think that absent the training or education that allows you to get into workplaces on, on ladders, it's damn difficult. And to answer the second part of the question, which is, you know, the how the authority is dealing with this, well, there are lots of different ways in different countries that is being approached. So, you know, in terms of the UK specific, you know, Rishi Sunak's sort of um, uh, approach, I'm seeking to be political, but I think he has a an awareness of economic dynamics which is helpful it's clearly not you can't make everybody happy all the time because you are balancing and he was on one of those key committees yesterday i think you know when they were announcing some of these new restrictions he gets the economic cost is is falling there's a debate about the swedish model versus ours and we don't want to get into it today but it is not the norm to shut down economies and collapse demand and collapse supply because that is the road to ruin and therefore there has to be a trade-off in understanding that a death toll related to coronavirus is um, is inevitable. And I think the data as of last week was the coronavirus is the 23rd killer in the UK. So there are 22 other things killing people more than COVID right now. Um, and so I would argue that we need to be doing everything we can to be economically supportive and it won't please everybody, but I think one that means that there should be more rather than less liberalism vis-a-vis the locking down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, such a difficult balancing act, like you say. It's, uh, you can't can't um, please everyone, and uh, and the whole politicizing a lot of these decisions has, has made it even tougher. I think for for for, for a lot of um, people in that. In that position, um, you mentioned some of the changes that that that, have, that that might sort of continue after after COVID. What what do you think um, some of those changes um, might be, and, and and how do you think they're going to impact um, leadership and, and and teams of the uh, of the future? Well, I think the idea that everybody who can in the service sector is always going to, from now on is going to work from home is unrealistic. Mm. If you are a younger person, how do you really get inspired? How do you learn other than by watching people in practice? How do you get motivation? Sure, you may work a day or two, but you need to be alongside people who have done it, who say, you know, who take you into the meeting, who, you know, who you see make mistakes and who you can suggest and debate and discuss. And so... So that's why I think that it's too too simple an assumption to assume that you know this. So we're all going to work from home most of the time. I think the office may clearly have a in the service sector I'm talking about. Um, you know, may have more of a rotation, but uh, I think that we'll see a gravitation to a model where more people are in working from the office than not, um, and it's that you know building culture. So I think that that's a to me that's pretty important. Zooms are great up to a point but you know they have their you know, they have their downsides i mean look covid is accelerating lots of existing trends i mean you know i, I think the number i'm going to maybe get this wrong but was it certainly sub 20 percent of people shopped did their grocery shopping online pre-covid and we know that number's going up i mean those were yeah. you know those were absolutely so there are trends that have been accelerated there are industries that you know were struggling that you know maybe their their end has been hastened you know, mm. and, and that's so, so sunset and sunrise industries, what can the government do to, to encourage the uh, you know, sunrise? Um, will people you know, travel um, as they did? I read a, a story, I was quite surprised. I read a piece of research yesterday that said that right now, um, even if it was safe, 80% of Americans wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get on a plane. Now, I, flown, I have flown actually a couple of times in the last few months. And... Um, 
yeah, of course it was a bit odd and the room was deserted and you could wear your mask, etc. But I, you know, you got, again, back to touching 8 billion people in the world and people want to see the Colosseum and they might need to think that going to Frankfurt allows them to you know, seal the deal. And so I I am not persuaded that, that, that you know some of these things you know, are not going to resurface. They will resurface mm. in different ways. But are there airlines in Europe that were shocking? I mean, without wanting to castigate a number of them, there are lots of European airlines, legacy carriers that were, you know, were not a great experience. And mm. maybe they shouldn't exist because maybe some of the the Ryanairs and the EasyJets, you know, and you know others who have who have a business model that is different will survive. They don't have they don't have pensions that you know that they have to support and lots of legacy issues. But so I think you're going to see a reordering now. You're going to get a reordering of supply chains because you don't want to be reliant upon not this time it's masks, but it'll be something else. You don't want it to have it to come from China. You might want mm. it to come from Turkey. So is there a reordering of supply chains? I am sure that's right. Is there some cost associated with that? I'm sure there will be, mm. to my point that there will be inflation. But there are going to be some strategic decisions which may not stack up when analyzed through the cold lens of a PL, but part of that are, you know, is a is a, is a touch of the deglobalization. It's been a tailwind to outsource the low-cost employment destinations. And that was fine. And China was already finding that it wasn't a low-cost destination. Like Mexico's cheaper on average hourly, it's only, I think, unskilled worker than, um, than China. But you're seeing those changes. And I think that that's going to be a combination. The question really is, and that's a sort of geopolitical question, is does this strain further the tensions between China and the, China and the West? And mm. does it lead to the erection of, you know, um, uh, boundaries and, uh, in sort of a me-first style attitude. Well, mm. that brings me to a completely different question. Thinking back to your days at the LSC when you were up there on stage with Heseltine. So, you know, what are you making of how the Conservatives are handling things at the moment? I think Rishi Shunak's doing a good job, but, you know, how's Boris getting on? And will Keir Starmer provide a... An interesting alternative. He's certainly got more credibility and scoring better in the in the polls. And then the other one, which I'll add as a little secondary question: Trump versus Biden. Who do you think is going to win? So those are a couple of political questions which flipped in there. Okay. So there was a I thought a very measured article in today's Telegraph by um, Haig, um, formerly of the Conservative Party talking about why you should probably recognize what's worked, but what also is working or what the conservatives are doing. And he has some quite good data about just how many tests are taking place and just how much progress has been made in certain areas that would have seemed unlikely. So well, I thought it was quite balanced and he has been a critic at times in Robert Morris. Um, look, my view is that, firstly, that you know, Boris was elected for a number of reasons and getting through the EU withdrawal was absolutely front and centre stage and then the combination of him being hit by COVID and nearly dying um, and being advised by the medical academic community that it was Armageddon sort of has hastened him into it or pushed him into a position with which he wouldn't have been naturally comfortable, um, i.e. more rather than less lockdown. And so I think the uh, the incompetences and the poor or unclear decision making that we have seen, it's not unique to this, this government, but you know, it's disappointing. Um, there are four and a bit years, aren't there, to run, or four years to run until the next, uh, you know, next election. A lot can happen and a lot can change. And I think that if we get an exit arrangement, that we might well do before year end. And even if we don't, and we're forced to trade on WTO rules without being very boring, that's how Europe trades with you know, China and the US. You know, it's it works, as one economist noted the other day, relative to COVID, UK leaving without a trade agreement is a minor likely impediment to GDP relative to you know, the size of COVID. But I think there will be. My, my guess is that a deal is done. Um, and uh, so that's that then leads to that very interesting question, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer is the voice of reason, and it's very nice to listen to somebody leading the Labour Party who suggests that that immense polarity in British politics that was deeply unhealthy and that was represented um, by Corbyn as, a, as the face of extremism with which we are not familiar in this country has started to narrow. But I would hasten people 
to uh, not believe that Keir Starmer is representative of the wider Labour movement, because whilst the Labour MPs, remember, did not support Corbyn and voted for him to be asked, the Labour Party, the wider Labour Party, which has been hijacked by momentum, is deeply antithetical to you know, many things that we would regard as normal from, you know, from private ownership through to levels of taxation, through to all sorts of things. So Starmer has to, Starmer may be the face of a more reasonable Labour Party and that is to be welcomed, but I fear that underneath it, and you've seen one of the one of the unions, I think Unite, pulling support from him, financial support to put uh, towards more left-leaning organisations, the schism within the Labour Party is not done. So, Long time to go to the next election. Um, lots of fault lines within the Labour Party. The Conservatives need to remember, you know, you creating jobs creates wealth. I'm going to just finish with my last quotation, um, which was, what did Churchill say about the socialists versus the Conservatives? Socialists believed in the queue, the Conservatives believed in the ladder. <laughs> Nice. Some very good, very good quotes that you've, you've uh, given us today. Um, so we're, we're on the, our, our last couple of minutes. So final couple of questions. Just for you personally, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh I think grand, really successful people have legacies. I don't think, you know, <laughs> I don't think the chap from Bristol, you know, should have, there's no legacy to be written about me. But, you know, I think that if you've made the most of your opportunities, created those as well along the way and recognize that luck has a huge part to play mm. um i think if, if you've inspired a few and you have been lucky enough to create a family and instill them with things that you think matter laughed with a lot of people um and shared love friendship um yeah you know then you might say well that's that that, that would make me happy mm. Definitely, definitely. And uh, final, final question: um, Have you got a book recommendation? Either something that's um, that sort of touched your life, or, or even just something you picked up during lockdown that's been been uh, good entertainment. Okay, so no military history books, although I do read quite a lot of them. Bad Blood. Bad Blood is the story of Theranos and the extraordinary scandal, and it's brilliant. Mm. So that was number one. Um, a little bit more serious, but I think it's great, is A Short History of Europe by Simon Jenkins. And it really does in 300 pages, 400 pages, maybe less, condense Europe's fragmented, fractured, argumentative mm. sort of, you know, past and potentially future um, really nicely. And then the one I was given by this co-founder of the Money Maze podcast, Will Campion, which is a really good book. I'm going to say it's Richard Reed. I may have that wrong, but it's called If if you could tell me just one thing, and I'm reading that book, and I think it is absolutely fantastic, and I'm going to give it to people as Christmas presents. So. Brilliant. And and I am going to, before we, before we go off there, in that uh, question I asked you, Trump versus uh, Biden, ah, yes. where do you think it's going to go? Oh, ah, yeah. <laughs> I think sitting here in the UK with secondhand information, I um, I don't know. I'm go I'm very lucky. So next week I'm going to interview for Rothschilds, uh, Mr. Anthony Scaramucci. Oh, oh yeah. really? Yeah. So I got to tell you, we're going to have a very interesting <laughs> conversation. I know that for a fact. Um, that is really and, fascinating. Yeah, uh, he's gone from um, press spokesman for Trump to um, you know Biden supporter. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with the heavy caveat that sitting here, you know, what can I really expect to say? We can see the polls, um, and the polls, of course, may not show us how many people just don't want to tell you mm. they'll vote for Trump. Yeah. Um, but I think Biden will get it. And then the more interesting thing is he got as the, as the Democrats got control of the houses, and if they do, then we can see some quite quite marked changes. But um, I think you know it's extraordinary that yet again the U.S. produces such potential leaders of such mediocrity um and that is extraordinary and it's not a good reflection on the us's wealth uh mm. in the real term of wealth um but my money i guess would be that biden wins it well simon it's been an absolute joy having you on you've had some great feedback uh, in the margins of things uh, ben and i i know have loved it and, and the banter has been fabulous 
Thank you very much indeed. Uh, stay with us. We're just going to go off air, but thank you for being on the series. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody who's listened. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Simon. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.